All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to season three, episode one of the Compliance Guy on this wet Wednesday, March 16, 2022. Uh, I've already got a smile on my face and we haven't even kicked off the show. And that's because I'm talking with my great friend, Eric Rubenstein. And, you know, I have so many people that have been on in the previous two seasons. Um, and I am grateful to each and every single person that's been on this uh, podcast on the live stream. Um, but, you know, there was just something in my mind that said, if I want to get this thing kicked off the right way, I need to have Eric on because you never know what's going to come out of this chucklehead's mouth. So, that's Eric, true. True. <laughs> so it's good to see you, my friend. Thanks for being here. Uh, I am. Uh, really excited, and I think um, I think we have a, a, a great show uh, to get through today. For I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to be kicking off season three, episode one. Although you do these every week, so I am a little interested and, and perplexed about how you get different seasons and episodes when it's really just a recurring sort of thing. Well, I mean, there's no there's no summer break, <clears throat> hiatus, holiday. There's no strike from any of the you know, production team. Like, is next week's episode going to be episode uh, season four, episode one? If it is, you won't be on it. That is true. So, you know, it, that you know that's that's a good question, right? At least I know that I'm the finale. <laughs> you're 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 the kickoff and the finale all in one. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about how how do you figure out when to end the season. Um, and I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, well, I'm going to do 25 episodes per season. And I don't know how I landed on 25. It just was the number that sounded right, but that got all messed up yesterday because I had our compliance guys segment with Terry Fletcher and that turned into episode 26, but I had already announced Season three, episode one with Man. Eric Rubenstein. And I was like, well, now I'm stuck. So I can't. You know what it could be? To... You know, most of the most of the commercial TV that's out there, they usually do like 24, 25 episodes as a season of a show. And then and then to like stretch it out, they have like a recap or a bonus, yeah. you know, like for people that were Seinfeld fans, like they had the hundredth episode was an hour yeah. of just clips. I mean, maybe that you just call it like a bonus. I guess. The best of. Like Stern, Stern's been on for forty years. Yeah, well, I don't think any. I don't think anybody's going to look at the compliance guy and go, "We want the best of the compliance guy highlights." Um, Just a black screen. It's just, (laughs) it's just a black screen. (laughs) Unbelievable. You know, I thought this was going to be a serious interview, so we can make it. Yeah, we will. We can. We We will. So, listen to all of you that are tuning in, logging on, hanging out with us live this morning. Uh, or for those of you that are going to be finding us later on in the day or down the road on one of the different streaming platforms or on more than 80 podcast platforms, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Um, again, you know, the reason why I wanted to have Eric Rubenstein on the program today was because there is so much going on in the investigation world right now. Um, each year, there's never a shortage, right, Eric, of the number of investigations that are taking place by the office of inspector general or the UPICs or uh you know which is safeguard services 
<coughs> excuse me. Um, and there's no shortage of cases that are being escalated up to the Department of Justice for consideration right. of you know, prosecution or getting a settlement agreement or a deferred prosecutorial agreement, something like that. So while there's a lot going on, right, in the world of fraud, waste, and abuse, where I thought that I would want to start our discussion today um, is really talking about investigations from an OIG special agent perspective, because we're seeing more and more um, civil investigative demands, which the Department of Justice, the AUSAs, use OIG special agents to serve those on practices if they don't go through the U.S. mail, right? Um, so because of this and because of what's going on, I really wanted to, for our viewers, for our listeners of this program, I really wanted them to understand really how an investigation happens. You know, how does something land on your desk as a special agent for the OIG? And what steps do you take in order to make a determination as to whether or not there's any there there for you to then say, let's go ahead and start requesting medical records. Let's go ahead and start interviewing people. Let's go ahead and complete our 302 forms, whatever it is. So if you could, let, let's start from zero, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to have the level set of you picks and the medic because they're, they're part of the, they're very important part of that process. And they're a very important uh, piece of that puzzle uh, to, to an extent. So, you know, around the country, you've got five you picks, you've got the Western you pick, the Southwest you pick, uh, those are contracts that are held by um, uh, Clarent, which is formerly known as Health Integrity. Uh, then you've got the Midwest UPIC, which is Coven Bridge, which used to be uh, Advanced Med, and then the Northeast UPIC and the Southeast UPIC, which are SGS. Um, those are competitively bid contracts. They are working in a quasi-governmental function. They administer the program integrity or benefit integrity piece. <clears throat> Medicare, Medicaid on behalf of CMS. So when audit letters are coming out from them, when they're doing a prepay, a postpay or an investigative audit, uh, and you are involved in something in which you're fabricating, altering or doing something like that, it's, it's obstruction of a governmental audit because they're considered quasi-governmental. And then there's the medic, <clears throat> which is the benefit integrity group for, uh, that's also uh, Clarent uh, Health Integrity. So they hold three of the, of the contracts. And the medic oversees part D, so uh, prescription drug benefits, uh, they deal directly with the PDEs, prescription drug events, and Medicare Advantage uh, Part C. And there is a requirement uh, for Medicare Advantage and for um, Part D sponsor plans that when they have a fraud, waste, or abuse issue that they need to refer, they refer it to the medic who does an additional workup and then ultimately gets it over to, <clears throat> to the OIG. So OIG works uh, very much hand-in-hand -hand with the you picks and the medic, and you typically are working with the you pick in your region. So when I was in New Jersey and New York, uh, SGS was our you pick. And you know, for those who have been around a long time, you remember that in the days of carriers and fiscal intermediaries, they were in house. Then it went to the the Z picks or the PSCs. Then it became the Z picks. The Z -picks. And now, as it we sits now, it's the you pick. And that was really because of a consolidation need that you know crime. 
uh, healthcare fraud crimes uh, are permeated across areas and you need to have things need to be in, in pretty large swaths of regions. They're all on a uniform <clears throat> case management system so that one UPIC can see what's going on in another UPIC and, and all of that. But you essentially, know, go ahead. hang on. There's, so I didn't mean to step on what you were saying. So I want to I want to make sure everybody is on the same page with us because I, I hear all the time, oh, I'm getting audited by the UPIC. And the fact is UPICs don't conduct audits. They're not like the MAC. They're not like the recovery audit contractors. They're, these are investigative That's right. entities, right? So yeah. while there may be an audit finding that comes out, am I correct in stating that the audit was most likely performed at the MAC level or by another entity that's doing that's functioning in a quasi-governmental role, and then it's sent to the UPIC for further investigation. They may review the audit, they may ask for additional documentation, and then the UPIC will issue their findings as to whether there's an overpayment or they'll escalate it to the Office of Inspector General for further evaluation. Is, yeah, that, is so that a think, fair explanation? I think all those can come into play, right? So the MAC, the MAC will, will conduct a desk audit. <clears throat> if they find that there is something there that, uh, that isn't uh, you know, passing muster, whatever that threshold may be or whatever that metric is, they, uh, they, may, they may pass that along, along to the UPIC. The UPIC is doing prepay, postpay, right. uh, which, are, which are benefit integrity functions. They're doing all things that are fraud, waste, abuse, compliance, benefit integrity functions. And, and then they're doing investigative audits because they are oftentimes a primary line of defense for the receipt of complaints, right? So people that make a complaint to... Uh, 1-800-MEDICARE, make a complaint through the MAC or something like that, those get routed to the UPIC. The OIG, and we could talk about this, but the OIG oftentimes uh, will uh, decline to investigate a case and they will refer the matter to the UPIC for any action that they deem necessary, which could be to develop the case to send back to the OIG. But yeah, by the time, if there's an overpayment letter that comes from the UPIC, it's the result of something that's come through um, either from the MAC, you know, the MACs can issue overpayments, as, as you know, but if the, if, if the UPIC is issuing it, there's usually a little bit more, uh, usually does a, a little bit more of it. Uh, there are desk audits that are done at the MAC level. Um, you know, we here at Advise have people that work for us that are former um, RNCPCs who worked at the MACs. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so they they understand like, you know, that kind of piece of the puzzle. But the the picks aren't doing just sort of your routine audits. What You'll get your letter and your letter will say, the, you know, we, we conducted an audit of your records because that's, that's really right. what it is. They're not saying we conducted an investigation because an investigation, you know, may have a different sort of tone to it. And so I don't know if when they send out that letter, if they're doing it for the purposes of uh, of of tonality. Yeah. If, if that's even a word and, <laughs> or, or, or if they're, um, or if they're doing it because, you know, it's essentially an audit in the absence of doing more of an investigation, right. which may be more invasive. It may be more pervasive of what they're right. looking at. So, but yeah, so the UPICs, um, the UPICs are doing, you know, a bunch of these things. They do these, you know, reviews that will be, uh, um, investigative, 
uh, as the result of there being a complaint or us, right. uh, OIG, I should say, sending um, sending information over to them to develop the case or something along those lines. So it, it could be a, a whole host of things that ultimately result in that. Right. Speaking of words, we had this conversation last night. Eric Rubenstein actually has his own word in the Urban Dictionary. Remind everybody what that word is. Yeah, did you look it up, by the way? No. Okay. Well, the word is the word is Notkin, N-O-T-E-K-I-N, and it's a you know. So I always tell people I'm a published author. If you go into Urban Dictionary, you'll find it. It's you know you're out of place and you don't have a piece of paper, so but you have everybody has a napkin, right? If you're in a bar and you need to get someone's phone number and you don't have your phone handy, I mean people. I think it's a it's gone by the wayside, but you know you write something on a napkin to pass it to someone else or a note. It's it's really on a napkin. It's a, it's a Notkin. So it's called a Notkin. It's it's sort of like a Shopkin. See, you don't have little little kids or grandkids. I don't. So, um, look up Shopkin if you are. Yeah, so I'm, I'm probably not, but okay. So okay. <laughs> so so let's let's get back to these yeah. investigations because and, and before we go there, right? I think it's important to address some of the areas in 2022 that I believe are high priority targets for the Office of Inspector General, as well as for other auditing entities. But because you're a, a former special agent with the OIG, I want to kind of focus I'm on- Retired, not OIG. former. Former implies that I did something nefarious. Retired means I left in good standing. Well, that's still debatable. Uh, well, you know, yeah. They did give you your retired badge. So they did. I, I, <clears throat> I, I can't argue with that. They did. So, so for me- I think one of the most important things that a practice can look at are their utilization reports to identify services that are going out in a high volume. Yep. Because our industry, right, we're dominated by data analytics. Data drives just about everything that transpires in our industry today, right? Whether right. it's um, whether it's uh, reimbursements um, <clears throat> under your contracts with your commercial payers, what Medicare makes as a determination for increase or decrease of a conversion factor or RVUs. It's all driven by data, but right. data drives audits, right? Because audits are looking at patterns. They're looking for outliers. They're looking right. for aberrants in a coding pattern. So for me, when I start looking at this, obviously, and most people who are listening to this are going to be like, duh, of course, Sean. Evaluation and management services, obviously. Number one, first and foremost, why? Because it's a low-hanging fruit, right? Even though <clears throat> for 99202 through 99215 services, we've transitioned away from just the bean counting aspect of the history and exam, and we've moved now towards medical decision-making and or time, in conjunction with medical necessity to drive the levels of service. But there's still a high rate of subjectivity, right? Because yep. of medical decision-making. What's, what's high complexity to me may be low complexity to Eric Rubenstein. So there's still that broad range of subjectivity on the 2021 changes that transpired for evaluation and management services. But for all other E&M services, in other settings, we still use the 95 or 97 guidelines, right? So there's still that high rate of subjectivity. Right. Um, 
other services, um, infusion services, whether you're in oncology and it's chemotherapy and piggybacks that are going along with that, or it's rheumatology for Remicade. Remicade is one of the hottest audit targets for the Office of Inspector General. Why? Because it's a high volume uh, drug, but it's a very expensive drug. Yeah. And there's been you know, when Remicade when Remicade first came out, um, I worked on a case um, that involved Remicade, and the you know there were some allegations because it, it it is an expensive drug, and it's right. covered as a Part B, as in boy benefit, that's right? Because you're doing it in the doctor's office, and so if you're going to do something that's a, a an infusion in an office setting, there's a startup cost, there's a maintenance cost, right? You need to have you need to have chairs to put people in to sit comfortably. Uh, if it needs to be refrigerated, you need to have the refrigeration equipment. You need to have, uh, you know, you got to have a room with TV. And, you know, now and today, they have that inter- people are sitting there for hours, right? They need to be in a comfortable place. Your office needs to be configured in such a way to be able to do that. So there's a, there's a cost for that. And, you know, one of the issues with <clears throat> some of these infusion drugs is, well, number one, if you're just talking about billing the J code for some infusion drug, but really doing like a vitamin B12 or something like that. Right. You know, that's a, I mean, the fraud, that's where a lot of that fraud is. You're giving people like some homeopathic related thing um, versus giving them, you know, what that actual drug is. But then, you you know, you've you've also got um, that when there are uh, a fair amount now of competitors to Remicade, Humira, some other drugs, drugs that are patient um, injectables. That's right. You know, at the at the end of the day, does a doctor's office want to invest the costs associated with taking a room and putting four chairs in there, and then you have to have staff, right, to monitor them and all of that? And so, you know, early Supervision. on, right. So early on, when Remicade was the only game in town, um, you know, one of the big things was there was there were a couple of issues that came up early on with Remicade. One was just straight out kickbacks that were paid as build out costs. Right. to induce a doctor to do it. And the other one was that they were the, the sales reps were coming in and doing like a one day preceptorship, yeah. you know, with the doctor. And then it, and then it sort of, and then it sort of morphed itself into the marketing, the spread. Like you hear that all the time on a lot of drugs on, on, on drugs. And oftentimes you'll hear it now on uh, diagnostic tests that are office done office base, but you, you, it's very common in the drug world um, on these physician infused drugs to see this marketing, the spread. And that is what is the cost to you versus what is your reimbursement? And the spread is that difference. And so the argument becomes that through a manipulation of the AWP, which is, you know, ultimately what a lot of the reimbursements are based on. And I've, I've heard phrases where some um, some courts have actually interpreted AWP to mean ain't what's paid because of rebates. <laughs> you know, right. there's rebates and, and things of that sort. But, you know, yeah, I, I mean, just I guess kind of circling back to the to the initial thing about the the, the way cases come in. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's get into that because 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 and I'll give you a good example. Right. So talking about infusions. Right. So and, and there's so many other services. Right. Telehealth. You know, telehealth is on the OIG's mm-hmm. list. Um, mm-hmm. These amniotic um, uh, fluids for musculoskeletal. Um, there's, there's, a, uh, you know, the synaxis machines for um, the vasopneumatics. 
uh, the injection of these vitamins that are part of this, you know, and we'll talk about what it means when there's not yeah. an LCD or LCA and whether or not that's a billable service or not. But to your point, let's just hypothetically say, right, to drive back to the original question that I asked, how does an audit or an investigation start at OIG? Yeah. So there's... if we know, well, here's the question. If we know, like, for example, on infusions, if we know that there's a problem with the number of units that are being billed for these services and the um, waste being reported incorrectly, is that something that would drive you? Or are there other factors on, you know, how you determine this is this is a viable case. Let's go ahead and start yeah. an investigation. So it's a it's a little bit of a complicated scenario because there is no there's no necessarily Boolean logic to it, right? So a little bit of it is, you know, when I was an agent for a year versus having been an agent for 20 years, my thought process is is vastly different. Um, so you've got to look at there's you know cases come cases come in reactive and proactive. You know I do. I do a, so many presentations, you know, on behalf of Advise, but I do a ton of presentations on sort of OIG operation stuff. And I don't give away the farm, um, no secret sauce type stuff. But, you know, cases, th this is kind of a common thing that's asked is like, how do cases come to the OIG? And it's really, you know, they, they come proactively, they come reactively. Reactively is going to be the complainant coming in, reporting something, a tip to the OIG hotline. Um, a referral from the UPIC, a referral from a, a law enforcement partner. And the proactive is going to be what we started talking about, which is the analytics piece, in-house analytics, the strike force runs on analytics. Everybody in the fraud, waste, and abuse world runs on analytics. Um, you cannot look at claims data to the volume um, that you would want to without using some sort of data analytic. Um, when I was a new agent, if I got a referral in on, you know, a, on an, on a provider relative to E&M upcoding, I would be like, oh my God, that's fraud. We should be doing criminal, criminal, criminal. Right, 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 right. I, 20 years later, I go E&M fraud. Uh, I would run unless it was an E&M fraud case with phantom billing services, right. not rendered. Right. So that's the definer is services not rendered versus a service rendered that's upcoded. And the allegation is an upcoding of one level or two levels or whatever it would be. My my knee jerk reaction would be in the absence of being able to prove that the service wasn't rendered. It's a civil case. Right. And then and maybe not even a civil case. If the U.S. attorney's office doesn't think it's juicy enough for whatever reason, then it becomes a, a CMP case with OSIG. But, you know, a little bit of the vetting process of getting a case in is sort of the the tincture of time that the more the more experienced you become as an agent and the more experienced you become in understanding the breadth of violations the better you are at you know at vetting them when when i started as an agent um you know oig is hhs oig is, is largest of the oigs I, I think it goes back and forth between postal but i think it's the largest one right now it is certainly the most active of the oigs from a law enforcement capacity the office of investigations you know is, is probably doing more arrests and search warrants than other oigs you know probably some combined there are some oigs out there that people don't do any of that stuff they're law right. enforcement you know but they're not really doing a lot of that stuff they're small oigs with four and five people um but but part of that is, you know, I was in an I was in New York City, 
and it's trial by fire. And then I went to New Jersey. And at one point I was one of only a handful of agents in the most densely populated state in the country. So you didn't really have the luxury um, of being able to pick and choose your cases. So whatever came to you, you worked. And so, you know, you had to be up for the challenge to kind of learn a little bit about it. And, and as time goes on, you just become a little bit conversant in a lot of things yep. to kind of get enough of a flavor as to whether mm -hmm. or not this is something that requires a little bit more vetting. You know, I think, you know, now almost, you know, 28 years into doing healthcare fraud type stuff, um, I think that my mindset of what I, of what I perceived to be, uh, to be a, a criminal case 28 years ago or 27 years ago, you know, I would have a different, I would have a different position on. And I will tell you, certainly, having now been in the consulting world for three years um, and getting even a more wider education on things and understanding a lot more, a lot of, you know, my convert, you know, you and I, we speak probably four or five times a week, you know, Absolutely. I always say that I, I, you always know that someone's an actual friend when you talk to them on the weekends. On the weekends. That's right. That's right. Right. So, but, but, you know, when you, ha when I have conversations with people that are really the, the, the industry knowledge base, you know, it does, it broadens and then, you know, it makes you think even more like, wow, is this even something that somebody should be treating as something other than an overpayment or, you know, yeah. what have you, but, you know, part of an, part of the vetting process is going to be where does that where did the allegation come from? Did the allegation come from an internal analytics of data uh, that that the OIG did? Uh, did it come from an outside source, a referral? Was it a combination of the two? You know, was there something that triggered something internally? And then lo and behold, we got a complaint on it, you know, a week later. And those are those are huge metrics. And, and I think it circles back to what you just said about utilization. And I say this in I say this with all of our advised clients. I say this with all of the presentations that I do. And it's the simple, the simple metric is the OIG is looking at your utilization. That's Why right. aren't you looking at your utilization? I mean, the standard, the standard set of data that you look at, uh, that the OIG looks at, and there's no secret to this, is they're looking at outliers. That's did right. you did you suddenly start billing? for a Hicks picks or a CPT code that you didn't bill for a year ago. And is it meteoric in That's its, right. you know, and that doesn't, and that is not indicia of fraud. It is indicia of being an outlier, but an outlier with an explanation. And the example I always love to give, you are a general practice ophthalmologist and you bring in a cataracts or a retinal specialist. Right. And so you didn't do, for example, for people with glaucoma, the two big things are the YAG laser and the IP, peripheral PI, peripheral iridotomy. Those are two types of lasers, right? I only know about them because I've worked a couple of ophthalmology cases, right? But, sure. I, but I do know to say, hey, if you're a general ophthalmology practice and you bring in a new provider to your group who is a glaucoma specialist who is doing YAG and PIs all day long, you went from doing zero to now a meteoric rise in them. You're going to be an outlier. So should you expect that you're going to get audited? Yes. Should you be looking at your documentation in anticipation of the when you're going to be audited, right? And so some of those, when an allegation like that would come, and we would get those allegations. Sure. When you get an allegation like that, there's a, there's a level of vetting that you can do that will help you to sort of 
you know, cut through that and make an identification about, hey, is this really a problem? Is this not a problem? You know, if you if if I got a hotline complaint referred to me, and the hotline, the, I will I will say that whether people believe this or not, the the hotline is managed by a supervisor. For years, it was always managed. The person just retired, so I don't know if they replaced her with another agent. But the the OIG's hotline, one eight hundred HHS tips, was managed by an OIG supervisory special agent for the entire time that I was an agent. There was an yep. agent that that supervised it, and every single complaint that came in was vetted, and many were closed out just on their face for lack of enough sufficient. But if there was something that somebody felt should be vetted by one of the analysts over, you know, if I was the duty agent for the week in New Jersey, um, you know, some days I would be looking at five or 10 um, uh, hotline complaints that would right. come in to, to be vetted. And you would see a complaint would come in where they would, you know, uh, so-and-so is the former billing manager and is alleging that they're billing for this service that they're not rendering or, or what have you. So, you know, some vetting has to take place. If if a complaint came in on something like excessive billing for peripheral aerodotomies, there's a level of vetting that you have to do to be able to understand, like, is this potentially got an explanation? Um, you know, I, I remember one of the last cases I worked before I retired, the, the allegation <clears throat> was involved a neurologist who was one of the highest billers in the country for allergy testing. Now, that's there's a non sequitur there. She's a neurologist. Why is she billing for allergy testing? But there were these collateral things that were out there that involved um, prescriptions being filled by local pharmacies. And, you know, there was a potential issue about whether there was an illicit relationship with the pharmacies. But with some vetting, there were some things that showed that that might not have been the case. You know, you do some geospacing, you look and you see where are these pharmacies relative to the patient, where are these pharmacies relative to the provider, and you can sort of knock down some of these allegations that may be, um, that may be peripheral to, to really some of the more salient, salient things. I will tell you that generally speaking, you know, the, the OIG agents and the OIG are not looking, they may be looking at every little thing that's out there. But at the end of the day, as you know, U.S. Attorney's Office isn't charging every single instance of every single thing that's been uncovered in a scheme. They're looking for the things that are going to have the greatest success of prosecution. The U.S. Attorney's Office does, you know, clearly does not look to prosecute if they don't think that they have the ability to win a case. Right. And, you know, they're going to rely upon the strongest the strongest bit of evidence that's out there. And then at sentencing, some of these pieces, uh, you know, peripheral pieces come into play through something that's known as relevant conduct under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So, right. you know, the, the metric for how a case, <clears throat> for how a case gets to, you know, in the vetting process, it, it can be very complicated because there really is no sort of set methodology or metric. Right. A lot of it when you're new is sitting down with your training agent uh, you know, I would sit down with new agents all the time and I would say, you know, let's review this. Let's look and see what's the dollar threshold involved. Does the U.S. Attorney's Office that this case would go to have a dollar threshold um, or are they more ad hoc? Are they looking to see like what are the facts and circumstances? Is this a case where you don't really think this has good criminal uh, intent to it to make it a criminal case? So are you just going to go and get the U.S. Attorney's Office to decline it criminally and then bring it to your friendly civil AUSA. Or do you well, we'll get to that in a minute. Hang, hang, yeah. hang tight. I want to I want to pause for a minute because there was a lot to unpack with what you've talked about. But 
um, somebody who who's listening to us, and I think this is awesome. We have folks that are listening to us from governmental uh, quasi entities, and this individual, um, which I love, they put LinkedIn user, uh, and I don't blame you. I'd probably do the same thing if I were working for a UPIC and I didn't want anybody to know uh, who I was, so that my uh, my my inbox didn't get blown up. But uh, this individual says the UPIC I work with does the actual audit. They request records. They have an RN and a medical. Yes. Uh, director review. So there you go. I think. You yeah. Know, but so, so, so the, says, so the person is not, it, it's not entirely clear. So the UPIC I work with, if they're in New Jersey and they get an audit letter from SGS, they're working with that UPIC. It's not that they right. work for the UPIC, but yes. So the UPICs have a medical director, because right. if you remember that at the end of the day, the UPICs are intrinsically involved with LCDs and LCAs, because yep. at the end of the day, the audit that's being done, we'll call it an investigative audit, but you know, generally people will say, oh, I got a request for records, so it's an audit. And there will be, there's, there's uh, CPCs, so there are just coder auditors. There are RN CPCs who are doing clinical documentation audits to see if right. they meet the medical necessity guidelines that are, that are there. And, um, uh, and so there's always gonna be a medical director because at the end of the day, if there are large swaths of denials from medical necessity, at the end of the day, you want the sign off of the medical director for this for sure. that you pick because they're the ones that deal with it. Now, also keep in mind that in about 2017 or so, I may be off a little bit, but around then, CMS <clears throat> shifted its responsibility from being the individual organization taking responsibility to be the voice of NCDs and LCDs and all of that, it shifted to the UPICs in about 2017 or so. Right. And so, um, you know, previously, if there was a case that was going to trial and you needed to have a witness to opine on CMS's position about a policy or something, you would get somebody from CMS, typically from the regional office, you know, or or um, CPI Center for Program Integrity, or one of its predecessor names, uh, that shifted and that went to the to the UPICs. The only reason I really know that date is we actually have somebody that's that's on our staff gotcha. who was that person, and you know, and yep. does that. But it is it is a yeah, it's it's clearly a, a big web. But but what I want to, if I just circle back, I do want to yeah, take you know, we we talk about uh, LCDs and and LCAs because it's not as as if there wasn't enough clarity, LCAs, you know, worked to provide some more of that. And we've talked about it on some of our other discussions about in the absence of an LCD or an LCA, is there coverage? And, and I, I always love hearing your, your, um, your sort of learned interpretation on that. Yeah. So, yeah. And let's talk about that. But, you know, one of the things that you talked about, right? So um, you're older than me. So you've been doing this longer than me. <laughs> but um you know 27 years that i've been doing this kind of work and i've been doing investigative work i've been you know doing litigation um you know defense service work now for 20 plus years of my 27 years in healthcare and i agree with you my perspective um on you know, years ago, when somebody would put something on my desk and they'd be like, look at this, they're using the modifier 25 at a high rate with all these evaluation and management services. And I'd be like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's probably a fraudulent activity. But, you know, I was 
22, 23 years old, right? When somebody's putting some of that stuff in front of you and you're, you're like, oh yeah, you know, and now here I am 48 years old and I look at things through a completely different lens, right? I look at it and I say, do we really have a situation where there's fraud, waste, or abuse, or is there something more to this possible situation? Let's go ahead and take a closer look. Let's examine it. Let's not jump to an automatic conclusion of malfeasance or an automatic conclusion that they're trying to um, scheme the government out of remunerations for which they're not entitled to. But to your point, and, and, and this is something where, you know, I've had some healthy debates with people. And, and for those of you that are, are hanging around with us, um, I think this is an important lesson. Um, it is critical that when your provider has a rep coming from a drug manufacturer or they're coming from a device manufacturer and they put this new revolutionary treatment that's going to change the face of medicine in front of you, but it's FDA um, certified. Not FDA approved. Cleared. Cleared. It's FDA cleared. Thank yep. you so much. Okay. FDA cleared. We have a significant problem. Okay. Because in a lot of cases, and if you, and all you have to do is take a look at how the government is now enforcing, you know, these these drug manufacturing companies now to be able to, you know, get it to the FDA approved level. But you know what Eric was talking about is this. In the absence of an LCD, LCA, or NCD, that does not mean that you have the green light to go and start billing for all of this stuff. What it basically means is that your Mac has not created an edit in their system to be able to catch the billing of these services. And a prime example of that is now, if you take a look with the amniotic fluids, I had people that were coming out and saying to me, Sean, no, 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 you're wrong. Chapter three of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual says if, if, if there's no LCD, then it reverts to medical necessity. You're right. It does. Except you have to look at the exceptions. And the very first exception says it cannot be experimental or investigational. And unfortunately, a lot of these things that came out in the amniotic fluid world, the first thing that it said was that these are right. what? The FDA has it right. It's good. And, and CMS will opine and say, this is considered investigational or experimental. If you look at a lot of things that CMS puts out uh, on non-coverage or similar things, even the FDA a lot of that language will say this is considered an experimental treatment, an investigational treatment. Now, there are there are some instances where CMS will pay for an investigative or experimental treatment. And the big caveat is clinical studies. That's right. That's and right. that's the only I mean, there might be other. That's the one that stands out to me as being the one. And CMS will put out guidance that they will reimburse for this clinical study because they feel that there's a, you know, because there's a there's some medical, right. uh, you know, direction there to pay for it. Well, I want to I want to I want to take it to the next step. So you and I share some some mutual friends, right? Um, former prosecutors. 
Uh, one that comes to mind uh, is Riz Dagley, who's now with Brock Eichler. And Riz was a former prosecutor in New Jersey. Um, you worked with Riz on several cases, right? So the question that I have for you that I think a lot of the listeners are wondering is, okay, you've conducted your investigation. At what point do you escalate it to the Department of Justice or to sure. the AUSA in that yeah. in that state or in that region? So Riz, Riz was with the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, and many states right. many states have a little bit of a different environment. So in many states, and New Jersey, I'll talk about New Jersey and New York because I work both in the both of those places. They're they're similar. They're prosecutors are strictly healthcare prosecutors. Uh, their, their detectives or investigators and their auditors are all embedded in the same place. And it's usually a team. It's an investigator, it's a detective or whatever they call them. And then the prosecutor, New York State, very similar. Um, for us, our prosecutors were the assistant US attorneys in the district in which you were working. We didn't have auditors. The auditors were from uh, Office of Audit Services. If we needed an auditor, that was a separate group. If we needed audit support, it would sometimes come from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the like. Uh, that's changed a little bit, the OIG. There are now some financial analysts, investigative auditors that have come on. Uh, right around the time I was retiring a couple of years ago, they brought on some people um, that, that are doing it. But it's a great question. The question the question really is, when do you bring your matter to the prosecutor's office? Now, in the in the in the Riz world of Mafuku, those people are working from day one together. And in, in most of the Mafukus and many of the Mafukus that I've worked with, the, the prosecutor is the driver of the case and is, is sort of dictating how it's going to go. With us, the investigator is doing their thing and doing as much of the investigation as you can do before you have to go to the prosecutor for anything. And, you know, typically that instance is when you need some help from a prosecutor for something which is typically a subpoena um so you know every every agent kind of had their own flavor for doing things and every agent has their own relationships um probably in the in the height of my career you know i spent about eight years in a cubicle at the u.s attorney's office in newark the office i was in closed in north jersey and they said you know work where you feel you need to work and I was doing a lot of work in the District of New Jersey at that point, and they gave right. me a cube, and I sat for eight years out there. And so I had the luxury of knowing who the prosecutors were in the unit. And I had two or three prosecutors that I enjoyed working with, preferred working with. And so whenever I had a case, I would go to them. They were my go-to people. Um, it wasn't a unit that was strictly healthcare, but there were prosecutors that focused on healthcare more than others. And so I would spend my time there and, and you know, you get very close to those people and, and you kind of know what they're looking for. You know what they're asking for. And so I would go to a prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office when I felt like I was at the point where I needed to get a subpoena for something. And that would typically be when I would sit down and say, look, this is my case. This is what I think it is. This is where I'd like to go you know, this is what I need for a subpoena or subpoenas. And this is, you know, where I think we should be heading. And then we would have that conversation about, should these be a grand jury subpoena? Should this be a HIPAA subpoena? You know, what should this be? Um, and you're right. typically making your pitch 
to a criminal prosecutor first, because even if you take a case civilly, you want to get the criminal uh, prosecutor to decline it. You, you know, in our in, in today's climate, the criminal division will usually not decline a case. They'll just bring a civil prosecutor in and work what they call parallel proceedings. If you're going to work something that you want to bring strictly as a civil monetary penalties law case, uh, there is a requirement under CMPL that in order to file um, essentially the civil demand letter, which is the functional equivalent of a civil complaint, in order to do that, you have to have a declination from DOJ. If, if an individual chooses to just settle with you and the demand letter doesn't have to be issued, then you don't need that declination. But I worked for probably 10 years with the same OSIG lawyer. And the, and the practice that we just did was, if we were going to pursue the matter as a CMPL, I would always go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and get an actual declination. And it could have been something as simple as an email. You know, this just confirms that you're declining this case. And that would be good enough. Because if, if the person decides to take the case to the mat, and DOJ wants to then get back in, you'd have to have something that shows that they were declining the matter. Here's a question for you. How many of the cases that you took to the district attorney or in your, in your division, right, in, in your state of New Jersey, what percentage of cases that you took to the AUSAs were actually carried forward um, for... Oh. Yeah, it's a good. That's you see a good where question. I'm going with that? So, so I can tell you there were many cases that I had opened that were closed before they even got to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Many, many cases where you would look at them, you would do some vetting, you would say there's nothing there. There's many cases that are just closed on the initial complaint. There's many cases that are closed after you've done an investigation. Um, and you know, I've had. There's one case that comes to mind where we just. Two cases, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there's two cases that come to mind um, where, where we dismissed uh, complaints. One case where a criminal complaint was dismissed after the person was charged criminally, right. the, a criminal complaint was, and there's one where um, I had a criminal indictment uh, during trial prep. We dismissed a criminal indictment on a provider um, due to some issues with, um, I wouldn't say the facts, I would say we had an issue with, with a witness who was credibility. Putting... No, 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 it wasn't even, a, no, it wasn't a credibility issue. Um, it was, a, it was very convoluted. It was a DME case okay. and the, the prosecutor essentially pigeonholed the, the, the expert witness into providing an answer in which the answer to the question was directly contradictory to what the facts were, but the questions were pigeonholed so much to that, you know, to, and then, you know, obviously then you've now created a situation where you've created a potential of a, of an exculpatory, um, for this, for this witness. Right. Um, but the broader, the broader question of, you know, cases that were presented to the U S attorney's office where we did work on them and then closed right. them out. I don't know what that number is, but, but it, it's, it's, there's certainly a percentage of those because, you know, in, in my career, I worked, I don't think it'd be unreasonable to say, you know, over my 22 years, thousands of complaints and thousands sure. of investigations. Um, you know, I think in, you know, at, at some points in my career, I was probably averaging 15 or 20 convictions, you know, statistical accomplishments a, a year at some point. Um, That's you know, huge. 
I was fortunate. Some cases I had had multiple defendants. You know, I've, yeah. I had cases with 14 and 15 defendants um, that were out there. You know, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty fortunate. You know, some years I had, you know, five or six convictions. Other years, I think I had 15 or 16, but those are cases that that's resolution. Those are cases that could have been worked on for three or four years at, right, a, at, right, right. at a time. Um, but it always keeping in mind that the U S attorney's office does not do a hail Mary. They really do not charge for things that they do not feel they have a, a, a very high percentage of winning. Yeah. Um, you cannot take into effect, into account, obviously, uh, how a jury is going to act, but you can certainly take into consideration things like jury appeal. Does this case have a jury appeal? Like That's for example, right. an E and M case with upcoding has a, you know, maybe not so great of a jury appeal versus phantom billing where you can bring patients in and say, no, I wasn't there. And I was on a vacation with my family in yeah. Hawaii. And or I the Elizabeth Holmes case. Yeah. Thanos. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so jury appeal is, is a factor that will always be a, it, it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle, right? Um, and well, one of the things that I've noticed there is, especially over the last several years, and as you know, the DOJ and AUSAs um, have younger folks coming in, um, and I'm not going to say inexperienced, but younger folks coming in. What I find in a lot of these cases that I'm brought in on is an over aggressiveness where they basically throw the entire kitchen against the wall to see what's going to stick. And I think part of that is to try to spook an individual to, to into getting into a settlement situation, right? Because if you hear that they're potentially going to indict you on 22 counts, <laughs> you're, you're probably going to be more willing to come to the table and negotiate something down, unless you just believe that what they have is, yeah. is, is a bunch of nonsense yeah right? but but keep in mind that each submission of a fraudulent claim yeah. is a count it is right and so 22 counts could be 22 instances over the course of 22 days that's and right always keep in mind that from the from a from a prosecute from a prosecution victory perspective and the way the sentencing guidelines work right. is that one count of conviction out of 22, the relevant conduct piece of the U.S. sentencing guidelines are still going to be able to get your loss amounts in there. Right. And so, and so that's, and so that's where, you know, when you look at, you know, Theranos, we'll go back to that for those, you know, the, Theranos, she was, she was convicted of some counts, not convicted of others, but there's still a victory in there. You know, you can, you can be, you can be acquitted uh, or have a hung jury on a number of counts. You know, like, you know, I had a trial once where, we had a, it was a kickback case and there's a lot of public record on this and, and I'd love to be able to show some of the video and pictures. But, you know, we had a defendant that was Orange Community MRI and it was a very large case. There were 14 or 15 criminal defendants. Uh, we had a couple of civil CMP cases. You know, at the end, it was about 17, 17 or 18 people. But we had a we had a, a defendant that went on trial where we had we had video of two instances of the defendant taking the actual kick, all of our defendants, we had video right. of them taking the money. Uh, and we had at least two videos, sometimes three, because we wanted to show that this wasn't a one-off error. And so we had our, we had our cooperating witness went in with a, a covert camera 
and had conversations about the kickbacks, handed the envelope with the money, explained how much money was in the envelope, and then took out from his jacket pocket yeah. the, the, the calculations. Oh, you had seven MRIs for Medicare. That's this. You had four. Pretty clear. Didn't so, some of these individuals at, in some of the videos, weren't they like, well, you're short this week or something yes, like that? Yes. So what we actually <laughs> did was to stir conversation, we would short the we would short them sometimes five or ten dollars because traditionally what had happened previously to us being involved, right. what our cooperating witness had told us was that the provider, there would be no conversation because it was a hush hush. So the 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 person would have an envelope, our cooperator, just hand them the envelope and say, have a nice day. And then that was it. Right. And so, you know, he, he was able to spark some conversation by, by doing that. But the point I'm making is we had two videos of this one particular defendant taking the money and talking about it and expressing his dissatisfaction with being shorted. Oh, you'll get me next week. When he was, um, when he was, uh, when he was ultimately uh, charged, he was charged with conspiracy to commit, you know, to engage in a violation of the anti-kickback statute, and then the substantive counts. Right. The fact pattern on the video was exactly the same. Nothing really changed. When the jury came back, the jury found him guilty of one count and not the other. Split verdict. Now, we can have an entire discussion about what right. goes on in the jury room and split decisions and jury compromise. And you are intimately, I know because we talk about it all the time, you are intimately familiar with split verdicts. I know you had that one case where yes. that occurred at least. And so that happened. Last but year. At the end of the day, that is still a victory because even though there was an acquittal on the one count and a conviction on the other, under 1B1.1 of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, there's this whole discussion about what's called relevant conduct, which is right. charged and uncharged. It's like when the drug dealer gets caught with a kilo of heroin and a kilo of cocaine. He pleads guilty to the kilo of heroin. Well, the cocaine still counts for sentencing because sentencing is based upon the civil standard of preponderance of evidence and not the criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. So that relevant conduct comes into play. And I will tell you, so these are all factors that come in when I'm getting back to sort of like, why did we start this conversation? Right. Is that when an allegation comes in, there has to be a really thorough vetting. Newer agents will typically need the assistance of a senior person to help them vet that allegation because they don't know any better or it's new. Or honestly, as a, as a seasoned agent, if it was on an allegation on an on a medical thing or an issue that I just wasn't conversant in, I might have to go to one of my coworkers who may have been really good at doing, you know, we had a guy in our office who was really good at labs. You know, he was the, he was the case agent for biodiagnostic labs, the main guy for, for BLS, which was the biggest kickback case at the time. You know, I would, I'd have to go to him and say, Hey, you know, there's this allegation I have involving kickbacks involving X, Y, Z, like, you know, so it's always an it's always an evolution, and you know it needs to be it, everything needs to be vetted, and all of that vetting needs to go on an ad hoc basis. It's awesome. So I think you know the takeaway message for me, and and hopefully for all of our viewers and listeners is, look, you gotta you gotta look at your data. Your data is king. Your data is going to drive not only what transpires within your organization. But what's going on at the UPICs, at the CERTs, at the MAX, at the Mafukus, at the Office of Inspector General, at any entity, the recovery audit contractors, the SIUs for the commercial insurance companies, you've got to be looking at your data. 
Use programs like Compliance Risk Analyzer. Um, go find physician distribution curves that are published by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and enter your data and see where you all are as an outlier or where there's an aberrance in your coding. Pay attention to the OIG's work plan. Pay attention to what you are seeing as denials coming in to your practice from your claim submission process. Um, being aware, understanding the risks of the services that you are providing and the risks associated with being audited for those because they are hot topics in the industry goes a long way to covering your assets. Be smart about this stuff. All right, so a couple of things in wrapping up. Um, there it is right there. There's our urbandictionary.com, Notekin. There is our published author, Eric Rubenstein. We are so proud of you, my friend. Um, it's nice see to see the fact checker has the same last name as you. That's interesting. Yeah. The, well, you know, I, that's why I get away with nothing in this household. She'll look at me and she'll be like, so tell me about X, Y, and Z. And I'll quickly think, am I possibly going to get caught if I don't tell her exactly the way it happened? And nine out of 10 times is yes, she will catch me and I will have no recourse other than to beg and grovel for her forgiveness. Um, all right. So with that said, I want to say thank you so much to my great friend, Eric Rubenstein, who we know we are truly friends because we talk on the weekends. True story. Um, it is a true story. Um, Eric, I want to say congratulations to you and Jean Marie and all the awesome people over there at Advise for the work that you do. Eric works with me at Doctors Management on a daily basis, it, it feels like, on all of the investigations that we are involved with, all the civil and criminal federal cases that we are retained as either consulting experts or testifying experts. Um, and it just makes my day move so much faster because uh, there's, there's lots of laughs and, and good things going on. So we have a tremendous season three coming up. Uh, I am extremely excited about some of our guests. Uh, Christine Hall will be on the show coming up here in the next week. Uh, Jesse Witten, Steve Lokensgard, two attorneys that really have put out some great information on the 60-day rule under ACA. <coughs> Excuse me, Robert Lyles, Paul Weidenfeld will be on the show. We'll be talking about uh, OIG exclusions and the criticality of exclusion screening in your organizations uh, and the differences between what Medicare and what Medicaid which is administered by the states, require. And also Chandler Martin will be coming on the show here in the next couple of weeks as well. So we have an incredible lineup of attorneys, uh, coders, auditors, and just overall incredible healthcare professionals that are going to be bringing us more and more incredible information. Uh, again, to each and every single one of you that are logging on, tuning in, and just hanging out with us today on the Compliance Guy Live, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and for doing that. Again, um, I just saw somebody said you got to have Ron Chapman back on. Ron was just on uh, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about his book, which I actually still have here, um, and it's Fight the Feds, Unraveling Federal Criminal Investigations. Can you believe I read that upside down and on the monitor? Is my so, copy lost in the mail? Dude, I had a 
buy my copy, okay? All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough for us today. We're out of here. And until next time, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care.